Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. I want to look briefly at Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Just this little paragraph here toward the end of the chapter, toward the end of the book, Revelation 19, and we'll look at verses 11 through 21. Our sermon passage this morning is our Psalm of the Month. Psalm 76. But before we turn there, let's look at Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed with fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come, and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Amen. The literary critic Walter Ong observed that of the five senses, it is the sight that is most easily deceived. When I first read that, I thought, surely not. And then when he went on to explain how it was that I was living perpetually as a believer in sight against all my other senses, he persuaded me that we are so often and so easily deceived by what we see. And this is why John has an entire book in which he says, and I saw, and I saw, that he being in the Spirit on the Lord's day is enabled To see the world as it really is. Not as we see it. Not as we experience it. 
For we look about the world and we see princes and kings and powerful people. We look about the world and we see Satan and all his minions in the work of evil. We look about the world and we see in a state of sin and misery. And forget that there's more to the world than what we see. There is also a rider on a white horse. Who is gathering together all this sin and all this misery and all this evil. For one great battle that here according to these verses doesn't happen. All the enemies of Christ show up. And are just simply defeated. There is no battle. They just lose. With this in mind, turn back to Psalm 76. Our Psalm of the Month is Psalm 76. A fitting psalm for where we are in life, in the year, and in our sermon series in Hebrews. As you will see in the coming weeks, there are themes woven into these words that will play out in Hebrews chapter 10. But first, this morning, Psalm 76. Here again, the word of the Lord. To the chief musician on stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and sword of battle, Selah. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep. None of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse were cast into a dead sleep. You yourself are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? You cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth, Selah, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath, you shall gird yourself. Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is awesome to the kings of the earth. Amen and amen. Princess Bride is an eminently quotable movie, so much so that it is perilous to mention it in a sermon. But the one line I want you to think about this morning is when Fezzik and Inigo are on the parapet overlooking the castle gates. And Fezzik discovers to his horror that there are twice as many guards as he has expected. And Inigo says, with extraordinary confidence, while he lifts the mostly dead head of Wesley, what does it matter? We have him. 
Isn't that striking? Faith in a dead guy. But is that not the heart of a Christian? Faith in a crucified Christ. Do we not look upon the sins in our heart and say, yes, but I have Him. Do we not look at the sins and sorrows we suffer and say, yes, but I have Him. This is what we are trained to do in Psalm 76. Psalm 76 gathers up the various pains and persecutions which the church will face. And train the church to respond to each one in turn with the words, yes, but I have Him. You see, Jesus is God's answer. He is God's answer to sin and to misery, to suffering and to death, to Satan and all the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is the answer God has given to these problems. And so let us learn to sing Psalm 76. Let us learn to sing with Jesus salvation. And let us learn to sing salvation into our world. Notice in the subtitle first that we are in fact called to sing. This particular passage of scripture, this one of 1189 chapters in the Bible, is a psalm, a song. These two words, whatever the ancient Hebrew nuance between them, are intended to communicate something that is sung. We are to sing this chapter of the Bible. What is more, it is addressed to the chief musician. It is a psalm and a song that comes from this man Asaph, but it belongs to the chief musician. It belongs in the public worship of God. Not only should we sing this psalm, this chapter of the Bible, but we should sing it publicly, in the choir, in the assembly, in the gathering of God's people. And we are to sing it neganoth. That's the Hebrew word there in your footnote. On stringed instruments. Interestingly enough, if you looked up the Hebrew word neganoth in your Hebrew dictionary, you would find that it is not associated with stringed instruments in any way, shape, or form. They just made that up. Neganoth is associated with the word to taunt, to mock, to ridicule. And every other Old Testament use of the word in the book of Job, Isaiah 38, Psalm 69, verse 12, Psalm 77, verse 6, Lamentations 3.14 and Lamentations 5.14, all mean the word very clearly and indisputably to be mock and ridicule and taunt. Kind of straightforward, actually. It's a psalm for a church that is being taunted, mocked. Slandered, accused. It is how we respond when the world thinks ill of us. It is how we respond when we don't have good press and the PR for the church looks bad. Does this not seem like a timely psalm? This seems like an appropriate psalm. In Judah, God is known, says Asaph. Notice that the first response to the taunts of the world, the mocking of the kingdom of Satan, as they despise the sons and daughters of light, is to say, yes, but we have God. 
In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. This is this Hebrew parallelism. Begins with Judah, ends with Israel. In the middle is God is known. His name is great. Verse 2. Begins with Salem, ends with Zion. In the middle is his tabernacle and dwelling place. These parallels point us to this theological conclusion. That what is special about God's people is not where they are, but who is with them. That they are Emmanuel. Our answer to the taunts of the world is, yes, but I have God. Yes, but God is with us. God is great among us, known among us. I have a relationship with God. I am reconciled to God. I have his tabernacle, his dwelling place. He's my God and we are his people. This is the answer. We respond to the boasts of the world by boasting in return. But I have God. But God is with me. And he's tabernacled among me. He knows us and dwells with us. How unlike our experience. I was sadly exposed this last week to a public controversy between two pastors. It's on the internet. It's across the nation. One lives in the East Coast, one lives in the West. And as they tear each other down, all I could do was sit back and think, wait a second, why are we defending ourselves? Why are you not boasting in God? Why are you not saying, yes, yes, but I have Jesus. He's come and dwelt among me. This is who I am. This is the identity of the church. This is what is special about the people of God. That our boast is God is with us. Not that we have it all together. Not that we have sorted it all out. My friends, we live in an age where we are all too swift to want to clean up our reputations publicly. And to forget we are here to glorify and enjoy God, not self. But if we are to be trained in this principle, that I am not here for the glory of myself, nor the glory of my church, but the glory of my Christ, for He is God among us, then we are to follow the psalm where it leads. To follow the psalm and the realization that there is real glory in this God who dwells with us. Notice first that he dwells with us in a way that nullifies the weapons of war. The instruments of earthly aggression. Verse 3, there he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword of battle. Salah, you are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of Pray. This Salah, to pause and to contemplate and to consider, is not separating verses 3 and 4 as they so often do, but in this case is pulling them together. That God here has destroyed the weapons of war. He has broken the effectiveness of the arrow. It is blunted and useless. The shield has been severed in two. The sword is in shards at the feet of the warrior. These weapons mean nothing. It is not important any longer that we be well armed or that the world is well armed. For God is with us. And we need not fear any weapon. Nor hold one. We need not bother with accumulating earthly assets 
in order to overcome the kingdoms of darkness and all our enemies that surround us. He has nullified the need to accumulate earthly welfare in order to win this fight. But to make the theology even more rich, he begins with the preposition there. There he did it. Where? In Zion. Where? In his tabernacle. Where? In Jerusalem. In Judah. In Israel. There he removed the need for war. There he crucified that son whom he had sent. The gospel erases the need for earthly weapons. I have a weapon that wins this war. I have a weapon that overcomes the world. Our faith. This is precisely what we are told. That it is our faith that overcomes the world. And why is it that our faith overcomes the world and not the armies of men? Because as Jesus said, take heed little thought, I have overcome the world. Our faith overcomes the world because our faith is in Jesus who himself has overcome the world. To this conclusion, Asaph comes, you are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The summary of this idea is that God is known to us. He's revealed himself to us. He's given us a name. A name by which we may sing his praise. A name by which we may call upon him and pray to him and cast our needs upon him. And he dwells now among us in the flesh. So that there is no need for us to go to war anymore. We can, so far as it is within our power, live in peace with all people. Because the reality is I have peace with God and have been reconciled to Him. And in Him, verse 4, you, in His person, is greater glory and excellence than three things that are now listed. Asaph gives us three metaphors to allow our minds to imagine how Jesus, in His person and in His work, How the gospel in its believing and understanding and working in us and around us is more glorious and excellent than any other power. First, in verse 4, more glorious than the mountains of prey. In this imagery, Asaph seems to be drawing to mind this kingly royal accomplishment that was so common in the ancient world. Mountains of prey, the word hills and mountains often means those of political privilege and excellence. But these are are mountains that have ascended, that have arisen through predatory acts. These are conquering kings. These are imperial powers. But the gospel has laid waste every one of them. Better than all the conquering kings of history. Better than all the empires of the ages. Is the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So too in verse 5. The stout hearted are plundered. They sunk in their sleep. The mighty men have found no use of their hands. These mountains of prey. These empires of ambition. These great kingdoms of the world. Have a horde of mighty men. An army of stout-hearted soldiers. 
And they all went to bed and didn't wake up. And they all donned their armor, strapped on their sword, went out into war, and found they couldn't grip their weapons. Their hands were useless. There was no skill or craft. They found that they were defenseless. Asaph could be imagining any number of historical situations with each of these pictures. He has broken the arrows of the bow, the shield, and the sword of battle many times in Israel's history. But there's one in particular that, if this is what Asaph is thinking of, then it's not the Asaph who lived with David. It's a different Asaph because it's in the days of Hezekiah. Sennacherib has gathered up all his mighty men, his stout-hearted soldiers, that great mountain of prey, the emperor of Assyria. And he has besieged lowly Jerusalem. Israel has fallen. All the kingdoms of the north and east have fallen. And Hezekiah stands alone in Jerusalem. And all those mighty men crawl into their tents one night. And 185,000 don't wake up in the morning. And Sennacherib goes crawling home. Their hands are useless. And the city of God stands fast. And Asaph says, see, we need not fight. David goes out to the valley to face the great giant. Goliath rises up before him and says to little David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Referring to his shepherd's crook in his hand. David casts it on the ground and says, No indeed. You come at me with spear and shield and sword, but I come to you in the name of the Lord God. His faith wasn't in his sling and stone. Don't let the little story fool you. His faith was in the name of God. God is with us. God is Emmanuel. This is our answer to the world. This is the answer to sin and to Satan. When they accuse and when they slander and when we're belittled and when we're beleaguered. We say, but I know the name. The name by which giants fall and are beheaded. The name by which kings go fleeing back. And the city stands fast. It does not fall. But then he gives thirdly this image. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both chariot and horse were cast into a deep sleep. Asaph here seems to be pointing us back to the Exodus. In which Israel was there at the bank of the Red Sea. And the Spirit of God, the breath of God, blew over that sea and parted death. Israel went through on dry land, but horse and rider and chariot fell into the sea, and there they sleep. There they are dead. In this way, Asaph dismisses from our minds each and all the concerns of this world's powers. Do we wrestle in this life as a church with mountains of prey? People who have Spoiled the kingdoms of this world and gathered to themselves incredible privilege and power. Yes, we do. But God is more glorious and excellent than they. 
Do we wrestle in this life with the stout-hearted, with courageous, mighty men who are full of wisdom and skill? And they come together to do great works and achieve great things such that their names are listed in the pages of history. Yes, we do. But our God is more glorious and excellent still. And do we contend with this advancing technology for horse and chariot in the days of Asaph would have been the cutting edge of military technology? Do we wrestle with these new frontiers, with advancing technology that it creates this new realm of power and this incredible exponential unleashing of evil? Yes, we do. But our God is more glorious and excellent still. So how do we answer a boasting world? We say back, but God is with us. And he's better than anything you bring. But I know the name of God. I have a Bible and I have prayer. I'm good. There is nothing else you can do to me. With this vision of God in mind, Asaph then summons us to three responses. Just as he has laid out these three metaphors or illustrations by which we can grasp the supremacy of God in our world, he now calls for us to have three responses. First in verse 7, you yourself are to be feared. Notice the echo in verse 7 with verse 4. You are more glorious and excellent. Now in verse 7, you yourself. The pronoun appears twice in order for Asaph to intensify the clarity of his point. We are not simply talking about abstract doctrine. We are talking about God himself. He is more glorious and excellent than all the world. And it is he himself who should be feared. More than anything else. For there is none who can stand in his presence when once he is angry. Should he visit the earth in his wrath, there would be no earth. Should he visit you or me in his wrath, we would no longer be. Consuming fire is he, and we would be destroyed. So we are called to fear. You have caused judgments to be heard from the heaven. That is to say, Asaph reasons that if God were to come in himself, in his wrath, he would, as a consuming fire, destroy all creation. So instead, God sends his judgment through creation. If the unmediated wrath of God were to come, nothing would be left. Instead, God in His grace and God in His wisdom runs history and providence, runs politics and economics, so that His wrath is worked out patiently, generously, gently, to the judging of all evil and the saving of all the saints. This is what Asaph is showing us, that we should fear Him, That is to say, fear him enough to repent and believe. Fear him enough to not to want to stand before him in anger. 
to seek a hiding place and a shelter from that holy wrath. We should fear Him enough to be still before Him and to say, God, forgive me and let me sin no more. To silence the sinful mind, to silence the sinful heart, to silence the sinful hands, and to be still in reverent righteousness before God. But so too, we should fear Him. That is to say, believe that He's working righteousness into this world. And we don't have to run around fixing everyone else's problems. To believe that His justice will be heard from heaven. And that when all the world comes and slanders the church and accuses the church, our answer is, but have you seen my God? Have you seen how He's with us? Have you seen how He erases all your earthly assets? And have you seen how He is to be feared? Reverently repenting before Him of sin and reverently letting Him judge justly in His time and in His way. We are so quick to pray down the wrath of God from heaven, believing that we know better than the judge himself. And Asaph says, fear him and be still. Now, of course, if I'm straining that sense of be still in reverent fear, consider the other two places that we're told to be still. Psalm 46, when all the world is in rebellion against God, God's answer is, be still and know I am God. In effect, church, get out of my way. I'm saving people. Similarly in Exodus 14, when they're at the edge of the Jordan, at the edge of the Red Sea, they cry out, the Egyptians are behind us, the sea is before us, we are trapped between two graves. And God says, in effect, be silent, be still. I will save you. Friends, we need to silence these sinful mouths, these proud boasts that look to ourselves, that look to what we do and not to God, to see clearly that He is the one working in the world, that He might be feared. Is our longing that God should be feared? Do we fear Him? Do we fear Him enough to repent of our sin and to hide from His wrath in Christ? And do we fear Him enough to let Him work out His judgments in His time and in His way? And to not assume His office. But secondly, while we are in the fear of Him, let us worship Him. In verse 9 it says, When God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth, Selah, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. Again, this Selah does not separate verses 9 and 10, but tugs them together, that we should meditate on the meaning of the two. That God arose to judgment. He took his seat as holy judge. He went up into glory, that is the resurrected Christ, and he sat down at the right hand of God Most High. That he should reign and rule and judge in the earth. And there, 
as the great judge of all the earth, our King Jesus delivers the oppressed. Now, what is it that you thought a judge does? What is it that you thought a judge was all about? Does he not dispense justice? Yes, of course. But also mercy. But also forgiveness and grace. Enthroned in heaven, Jesus dispenses judgment. Ridding the world of wickedness and sin. But delivering the oppressed. Delivering the poor and the needy. Delivering the humble of the earth. Siding with the weak and the powerless. And bringing them freedom and peace. And so to this end we are to conclude in verse 10. That the wrath of man shall praise you. That is to say that the wrath of all these mountains of prey. These great predators of humanity. Who go about accumulating prosperity and power for their own ends. Will ultimately be simply instruments of God's glory. They will simply be reduced as elements of praise. Likewise, those who are stout-hearted warriors, mighty men who find their hands useless in the hour of battle, will find that they are just objects of wrath for the praise of God. We have nothing to fear, dear friends. The wrath of man shall praise him. The judgments of man, which fall so heavy on the church, which slander and accuse her and despise her, They make little account of her. They accumulate to the glory of God. Notice, not us. They do not accumulate to our glory, but His. And so too, the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. That is to say, that God will gather up the threads and the garments and the tattered pieces of this broken world. And he shall put them on himself like a garment. He will robe himself with the ruins of human sin and misery. If this isn't pointing us to the incarnation, then I don't know what it is. That God will dress himself in the wrath of humanity. He shall carry a cross on his back. And he shall wear its thorns on his brow. And pierce his hands and feet with its nails. This God will do. And so turn the wrath of that mountain of prey, ancient Rome. Into endless worship. The salvation of the church. And he'll take those stout-hearted warriors, those mighty men who stand at the foot of his cross and bring forth from their lips the words, surely this is the Son of God. And even the remainder of the wrath of men will praise him. And he will gird himself with the glory of redemption as he saves the world. Let us worship Him. Let us worship Him. That as the world decays and as our civilization transforms and changes, let us not be afraid. Let us fear God 
and worship Him. But then thirdly, finally, verses 11 and 12. Make your vows to the Lord your God and pay. Let all who are around Him bring presents to Him who ought to be feared. In this way, Asaph sums up the burden of his call. That all those who are around God, that is, those who have proximity to Him, the Judah and the Israel of verse 1, the Salem and the Zion of verse 2, those who have known His name and experienced the blood of atonement in the tabernacle, those who have come to understand the gospel truth of Jesus Christ and those who have witnessed the destruction of the weapons of war in verse 3, those who have watched the mountains of this world come tumbling down by the rock that was built without hands in Daniel's vision, who have seen the armies of this world come to nothing and know the stories of our fathers of old, how they survived war after war without weapon but by God's grace and glory. Those who have experienced this salvation, who are around God in His fellowship and in His friendship, to you, He says, make vows and pay them. Now, of course, I can, I can apply this very immediately to our lives. Number one, join the church. Take the membership class and make your vows. Be united to the body and bride of Christ. Number two, present your babies for baptism. We get to do that next week. And we take vows as we receive a new one into our membership. But also see the metaphor here. Be married to Christ. Say, that's one. Him. He is my husband. He is my head. In him is my boast and in him is my hope. It appears the Apostle Paul read and sang Psalm 76. For he declared, I will boast in nothing except Christ and him crucified. Let us be united to Christ. Let us make vows to God most high and be his bride Faithful, loving, submissive, and reverent. Fearing Him and worshiping Him and Him only. The exclusivity of marriage is in view here in Asaph's metaphor. That we have one God and one God alone. And it is not this nation. And it is not my wallet. It is not my job and not my reputation. I have a God and His name is Jesus. I am bound by vow to Him and Him alone. Because it is He in verse 12 who cuts off the spirit of princes and is awesome to the kings of the earth. We get to end with a really beautiful image of what Asaph wants us to learn as we sing through Psalm 76 with him. This verb in the Hebrew... To cut off the spirit of princes is actually a word from gardening. It means he prunes or plucks. The vision is this. 
Assyria is this great empire that conquered all the world, a mountain of prey with many stout-hearted warriors, mighty men of valor. And God walked by Assyria one day, and like a dandelion, he plucked its head and threw it in the trash. He cuts off the spirit of princes. One day, one day, God walked by the British Empire and went, Goodbye. One day, God may walk by the American Empire and say, Goodbye. And pluck that flower and throw it in the fire. I do not know when. And I do not know how. But I know that there will be a kingdom on this continent long after this country is gone. The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That is our boast. That is our hope. That we should respond to the world and say, I know someone. I know someone who has hope and salvation in him. He is awesome toward kings. He plucks out their spirits and he brings them low. Like Nebuchadnezzar, maybe to the humbling of their souls to salvation. Maybe. But maybe like Pharaoh, to the hardening of their hearts and their destruction. In either case, my friends, let us sing Psalm 76 and celebrate this Jesus who rules and who reigns. Before we sing, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful psalm. We thank you for the precious images and truths that are here and ask that as we behold our God and see you glorious and majestic, awesome, that our faith in you would rise and deepen and strengthen and that we would be unashamed in this crooked and perverted generation to lay hold the gospel And to preach it as the power of God unto salvation. To stand fast in the face of taunts and ridicule. And to say, but I am not ashamed. Father, strengthen our hearts in the goodness of our God. Through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, which we ask in his name. Amen.